Good evening and welcome to the Ecology Hour. Uh, my name is Tim Bray. With me uh, in our remote virtual studio is my co-host, Dr. Robert Spies. And Bob, you've lined up a good guest for tonight, I understand. Yeah, we're very pleased uh, this evening to have do uh, Dr. Rebecca Ash. She's assistant professor at uh, East North Carolina University. And uh, she is uh, basically an ichthyologist and, and specializes in looking at reproduction of fish and uh, development of the larval fish and has done that in all kinds of different settings in Southern California and uh, East Coast estuaries. Uh, you've even done some work in the tropics, I think, haven't you? Yeah, we actually have a couple of projects right now on that are kind of focused on the Caribbean. They're um, more modeling-oriented projects. Um, happy to talk to you about that if you'd um, like to hear about that as well. And apparently, uh, you've also uh, paid a lot of attention to climate change in your work and how it affects uh, reproductive cycles and, and development of the larval fish as well. Um, so maybe you could, we usually start off asking our guests um, how they got interested in their field and, and, and kind of what their educational background and experience is in kind of a relatively short description. And then we could just kind of move on to talking about some aspects of uh, fisheries biology. Um, I did want to mention something fascinating to me. I saw it in the Science Magazine uh, this week. And it was about the transition in evolution from fish to uh, land vertebrates and the development of um, lungs and legs and so forth to walk on land. And apparently all these genes, uh, at least some of the major genes that were necessary for that, are already present in some pretty primitive fishes. It was, I thought, really quite interesting. I think most biologists, um, it's a big... You know, it's a big question as you look at evolutionary biology uh, over the long haul and, and how a, uh, animals colonize land. Um, it was pretty cool. There was, a, I guess, a graduate student who was fooling around with this uh, gene editing pro, uh, procedure, uh, uh, CRISPR, and disabled a couple genes. The, uh, he was looking at little zebrafish and allowed him to see some bones develop in the zebrafish that were uh, apparently analogous to some of the bones in the legs of uh, higher vertebrates. Um, you haven't, <laughs> did you read that? I did. Well? Like, I think I did read the same one um, that you did. And actually, that's a really good recap of it. I think like one of the things that's actually really somewhat related, but interesting is just if you look at like um, air breathing fish, it's like one of these things where it's not just one lineage where that's evolved. Many lineages have evolved that. So that's like a one of these other steps to transition from water to land. And it's the fact that it's evolved several times does suggest that there's like, you know, that I guess that there's, it's one of these pathways that maybe is favored and that there's some convergence there. It's kind of interesting. <clears throat> And Tim is always digging me for kind of getting off subject, but <laughs> this is particularly interesting to me this week. But uh, this is classic Bob right here. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's fishy news. There's a you know, tie. There's a tie. 
Well, we had two shows in a row on birds, and so yeah, I got to let him run on this one. But it was really a, kind of a basic thing in evolution is a lot of the genes that uh, are necessary to do the next things in evolution are already present in some other form uh, and maybe just suppressed uh, or there are genes that can be easily converted from one thing to the next function that allows things to happen. And so it gives us insight into the evolutionary process that I think is amazing. So anyhow, maybe we could, uh, we could double back and I could ask you again <laughs> to tell us a little bit about your background yeah. and uh, how you got, how you got into fisheries biology and, and, uh, so I actually had a little bit of a weight, like wavering path in terms of my career compared to like, there's a lot of marine biologists who just from age four, they, they want to do it where, um, I guess the first kind of influence in terms of being interested in a lot of the things I study is, um, when I was in sixth grade, which would have been in probably about 1990, maybe 89 or so, um, we saw a movie about in class, I'm in my science class about the Amazon rainforest. And at the very end of it, they have talked about how destruction of the rainforest was one of the factors contributing to climate change. And as a child, I found that like it was my first time ever hearing about climate change, which in and of itself kind of reminds people that this was something being talked about in like early 90s, late 80s. Sometimes people think it's a much more modern problem. But, you know, as a child, when the scientists in this documentary were talking about you know, this is something that's going to affect my children, my grandchildren, I realized as a child that they were talking about me. So it was something that I found really disturbing. But the way I kind of reconciled this is kind of thinking when I grow up, maybe I, if me and other people of my generation are very focused on this, maybe we can kind of find solutions to it. I actually studied in college cultural anthropology with a minor in environmental science, but I had a internship at NOAA um, in Silver Spring, Maryland as a junior where um, I was interviewing coral reef biologists on monitoring programs. And that kind of turned into a job for a couple of years after graduation. Um, it was something where when I first took that position, it was somewhat because, you know, when you're starting out a career after graduation, you're I think I wasn't necessarily planning to be a marine biologist at that point, but I had a good internship. I was like, let's just keep going with this. And I think halfway through it, I kind of realized um, I actually do want to go into this in terms of my career. And I uh, decided at that point, since my undergraduate degree was in cultural anthropology rather than biology, that I should probably go to grad school and get a master's degree. So I was at University of Rhode Island, uh, their graduate school of oceanography for my master's. And then I was at Scripps Institution of Oceanography for my PhD. And that's really kind of where like the stuff that I started studying, um, it's been fairly continuous um, in terms of the issues and topics that I've been looking at in my research since that time. So I started looking at, while well, I was at Scripps, changing uh, changes in seasonality um, under climate change, both focusing on changes in when fish reproduce and why, as well as changes of what's going on with uh, plankton and seasonality, because a lot of fish have 
kind of evolved to reproduce at approximately the same time as plankton blooms in order to guarantee or guarantee as much as it's possible in ecological systems that are often varying that there's plenty of food available for their offspring. So you have this kind of evolutionary kind of fit between the timing of oftentimes plankton blooms and fish reproduction, but at the same time there's variability in both of those and they're both influenced by different environmental cues. So like one of the questions that has been a big focus for me is just as we change our climate, if these organisms are using different cues to know when to reproduce or when to have, when there's going to be a plankton bloom, are these things that are likely to be, continue to be aligned under climate change or could they become misaligned? Well, yeah, and Scripps, uh, you're, you're right next door to the NOAA Fisheries Lab there that's got that Macal coffee uh, yeah. uh, that goes back, uh, what, back to the 40s or 50s, I think. And uh, uh, so the long-term collection of uh, fisheries uh, uh, material to, to work on. That's that's exactly the, um, the case. So I use Cal Coffee data quite a lot. So just for viewers who might be unfamiliar with that program, Cal Coffee is the California Cooperative Oceanic Fisheries Investigations Program. That's kind of a mouthful. So usually the acronyms used, and it's you know it is this wonderful treasure trove of ecological data. Um, as Bob just said, it started in 1949 as a response to like the crash of the sardine population, um, which Cannery Row was written about. And basically at that time, there was this debate about whether that crash of that population, was it because we were overfishing and removing too many sardine, or was there some kind of change in the ecosystem or the oceanography or the climate that led to that crash? And the way that that debate was solved was basically to say, let's invest some money from the precursors of NOAA, from you know uh, Scripps and then uh, Calfish and Gain to create a very widespread monitoring program. So for their first 10 years of existence, they had research cruises going, I think about 300 kilometers or so offshore from Southern Baja, California, all the way up to Vancouver, repeating this like every um, month of the year. So it's just an incredible amount of effort and money, I think, um, that went into that. But um, the program has been maintained since then. It doesn't cover as much of a large spatial area. And at this point, it's monthly. But it's one of the really premier data sets anywhere in the world for looking at connections between fisheries and um oceanic conditions because of this idea of sampling both things at the same time, which um, at the time when this was designed, that was really novel. It was like, you know, even nowadays, oftentimes you have fisheries research cruises, and then you might have a very different group of scientists going out on oceanographic cruises, and the two don't always intermix. So I think that's really kind of a, you know, a unique sense of foresight for that people who created the Cal Coffee program. And as a result of this, we really do have an excellent data set of for larval fish for many different species in Southern California going back to the 50s. So with the research that I was doing for my PhD, 
what we end up doing is I became interested in these changes in seasonality. And this data set wasn't really designed to look at this. It was more designed to look at variations abundance. But one of the things I noticed is in recent decades, they do cruises on a seasonal basis. So they'll always have a spring cruise, a summer cruise, a fall cruise, and a winter cruise. But just because of logistic complications, the spring cruise, most of the time it goes out in April, but occasionally it'll be March, occasionally it'll be May, um, and same for other months. So if you kind of take a decade's worth of data, you actually have data from pretty much every month of the year with maybe one or two exceptions as things have gotten actually more aligned in recent years. So be- with that, I could look at kind of on a decadal basis, compare the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s to see if we have changes in when fish were reproducing based on kind of when their larvae showed up. Um, and I don't know, maybe I should, should I kind of pause there? Should I kind of jump into a little bit like what we were found for some of that research? Well, uh, yeah, I was interested and. In, uh... Uh, I, I know there's a big story there that I've heard before about uh, mackerel and sardines and, and how they change on a decadal basis, but uh, uh, I'm sure there's a lot more more stories there than that. So one of the things I'll want to get back to is what was the answer to the sardine collapse? Because oh, yeah. I think a lot of our listeners probably know that story, but a lot of listeners may not know how that uh, how that story actually turned out. Let's actually talk about that just since, um, since like you just mentioned that. So, um, you know, I think that like the answer to that was that both camps were right. Um, so there's decadal variability in like uh, a lot of forage fish or small pelagic fish like anchovy and sardines. And they're subject to these boom bust cycles. But what we have found is that if you're, Fishing them, particularly at like a heavy level on top of that, when they um, crash, they're probably going to crash faster and harder and take longer to recover. So the cycle's natural and it does have to do with um, the oceanography, but fishing can kind of aggravate it and kind of delay the recovery time. But um, one of the things that's actually fascinating with this is in the Santa Barbara Basin, um, there's these cups, an area where there's no oxygen in the sediments. And as a result, there's the seasonal weight layer of sediments where they have barbs that you can kind of count them back in time um, to date things. But there's also preservation of things in the sediment because of this lack of oxygen. So people have kind of looked at that particular basin, which is near like uh, spawning grounds of sardine and anchovy and kind of use that to basically trace back um, abundance of fish based on scales found in the, the sediment layers for hundreds of years. And they can see that before there were active commercial fisheries by kind of, um, you know, Westerners, you still had these oscillations in sardine abundance and anchovy abundance. And, the, kind of the thought right now is that for sardine, that they tend to occur mainly in areas that are a bit further offshore where there's their productive areas, but like where there's some upwelling of currents, but the upwelling isn't super fast and that they have particular 
like uh, plankton that they will filter feed on and that there are cycles in had the abundance of had those offshore plankton there are smaller versus have more active upwelling periods where you might have more coastal upwelling and larger have small of um, plankton which favor anchovy so it's not necessarily that with these fish that are cycling in terms of their abundance and where they're sometimes out of phase in terms of which is more abundant, which us, that they're not necessarily competing with each other, but they have different habitats and different pet prey that they use. So changes in kind of that in climate, which kind of affects uh, the amount of upwelling that's related to have wind patterns and temperature can lead to these fluctuations in sardine, but us humans might have amp amplify kind of the response in terms of how quickly they crash and how long they take to recover. And I guess like another thing that's quite interesting that I've been hearing a lot about um, recently is I think that this last year um, has been really a boom year for anchovy even though the conditions are typically like um, what you would not expect to be good for anchovy. It's been fairly, I think, a fairly warm year in terms of like the ocean's climate. And usually there are species that does better when it's a little bit colder. But, um, you know, it seems like from what my colleagues who's at that NOAA lab that you mentioned earlier that, um, that it's been like a fairly good conditions in terms of food resources. So it looks like that food probably is likely the driver of what's going on. It's interesting because uh, one way to think about uh, the age uh, class strength of fish, in other words, how well is uh, reproduction occurring in any particular year, you kind of, you kind of have to line up a whole bunch of different conditions that have to do with temperature, upwelling, nutrients, the kind of plankton that's there, uh, the predator fields, uh, what's eating what and so forth. And if you line up all those things right, you can have a big uh, boom year. And uh, likewise, if uh, you can have a bust year, if things are kind of breaking down and not going in a, a direction uh, of uh, uh, good good survival of the eggs through uh, hatching. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think that's like one of these things that has really uh, baffled sometimes fishery scientists going back to, um, I'm a fisheries oceanographer. So the father kind of the field of fisheries oceanography is a scientist called Johan Kurt, And he actually had that exact insight that looking at kind of herring off of the coast of Norway, that there's huge abundances or variations between years in the abundance of fish that have entered the fishery and formed new cohorts. And um, he basically kind of said that he thought it had to do with either survival or uh, based on kind of feeding conditions or drift. And I think people have like been debating this for a hundred years since, but I think what we've have come to realize is that there are so many factors that it's really the combination of all these factors across the egg stage, larvae stage, and juvenile stage kind of summing together that creates this variability in uh, kind of cohort strength of fish. Are there any models, Rebecca, that, um, that exist that kind of, uh, say on a scale of one to 10, you know, the conditions are, are good for uh, predation. Uh, the conditions are good for food. 
some other scale? Can you kind of string those things together in a model to, to get some kind of a rough prediction of how strong the age class is? I think that like people have been definitely working along those lines. And um, so I think that's, that's kind of where like the science is developing. I think sometimes it's really hard to like uh, do that successfully. Like one thing that I often talk about with uh, students is um, a lot of fish produce upwards of a million eggs. And then if you have a stable population, that means Two, two of those eggs are going to survive. So survival is often infinitesimally low. And then these processes that affect survival um, can be very, like have a small impact on survival when it's like that low of survival levels can have really large impacts on populations. So I think that there's, there are definitely a lot of groups that have been like working towards kind of both modeling kind of dispersal of larvae and also doing models looking at feeding and energetics. And I think we're getting closer to like solving that problem. And I think there are some fisheries where maybe you can, you, where there definitely are correlates with uh, recruitment and, and environmental factors, but it's, it's a challenging field, especially because there's also this um, history of having um certain things that maybe produce really good correlations with fisheries recruitment for a number of years. And then something in the ecosystem shifts and what used to work well um, sometimes doesn't. So I think that's kind of one of the challenges, but I think that to, to really get past that, like um, mechanistic models can really be important because oftentimes those shifts aren't caught by empirical relationships just because how fish relate to like one factor could potentially change if something in the ecosystem kind of evolves. Yeah. It sounds like a lot of these are nonlinear processes too. If you've got yeah. That's, that's another fascinating thing that um, there's a lot of research that kind of shows so much of a, like a, the variability in biological time series in the ocean is um, nonlinear, where in terms of the physics, there's a lot of red noise, but it is much more of a linear system. So um, it's like, I think that's kind of sometimes the challenge of linking it where you have um, processes that are interacting at different time scales and in different ways. Yeah, and if they have wildly different probabilities, that makes it really difficult to, uh, Nonlinear effects with uh, with crazy non-normal probability distributions become extremely difficult to model in any predictive way, right? And and it sounds, I mean, when you do, when you describe a fish that might lay a million eggs and uh, just to maintain a stable population, that means two out of a million of those will live to sexual maturity. That means that you're dealing with extraordinarily low probabilities and and clearly not normally distributed probability functions. How do you model that kind of thing <laughs> with all these other variables involved? I mean, I think that like one of the things that people have been kind of thinking about is also like safe operating zones as well, because I think that there's some capacity to like model it, as I mentioned, but there's also, there's also huge challenges. So I think um, like one thing that you know, is useful sometimes to think about is fish like who have large amounts of eggs, um, but few survive also are often um, 
sometimes larger and long-lived species. So they might be basically hedging their bets in some ways by putting a lot of eggs out there and waiting for the right time um, and conditions. And this is something like where in that case, you might want to think about managing fish in terms of maintaining a diverse age structure and age classes, just because it's something where they might not be successful at reproducing the first time around. So maintaining, kind of making sure that the older, larger ones that tend to be have higher fecundity and produce sometimes eggs with more yolk that have greater survival, but um, also are more likely to be targeted by fisheries, that there's at least some of those older kind of big fecund females in the population. <laughs> yeah, that gets back to something. We had Milton Love on the show uh, a couple of times, and uh, it's been a few years, I think, since we talked with him. It's probably time to get him back, but uh, he brought that up, that the big old fecund females uh, specifically in his case, you know, he's interested in rockfish. And uh, I think it's true also for lingcod. In fact, with lingcod, I was just reading that uh, the males kind of, they stop growing at a certain point. So you, you never find a male that weighs much more than about 15 pounds. But the females just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. That's The older they get, the bigger and fatter they get. And so you can get a 100-pound female. And the bigger they get, the more eggs they lay. And they're so they're long lived and uh, their fecundity is obviously extremely variable because they'll lay well over a million eggs if they're a big old female like that. And then sometimes those eggs are a lot better quality than eggs from a younger fish. No, exactly. Right. And I guess I was going to say, like, one thing, I guess just bouncing back between coast is right now we're um, my lab's working on a project where we're tagging um, southern flounder on the east coast and we actually see those exact same dynamics on a lot of the fish that we're tagging while my um, master's students um, is doing some work where he's looking at gonadal somatic development and also um, the ear bones which can be used to age fish and also look at habitats they um, use uh, so in addition to tagging fish, we also bought, brought some specimens back to the lab for that. And when he was, uh, you know, dissecting them, looking at the gonads, because we we're trying to tag all the largest fish just to support the weight of the tag, um, all those were like 100% female, the ones that he's um, like uh, looked at so far. So that's just like another example of a species where you almost have dimorphism in terms of like size between males and females yeah big time what what species was that you gotta you just biased your data set <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean it, this is southern flounder i think the the goal of that project is really to look at migration patterns and where they're spawning so i think with uh the main goal it's actually useful to see where the females are going just because they're they're the ones who are you know, oftentimes like migrating further offshore, but it's an interesting project just because this is a species that um, both in like the Atlantic coast and the Gulf of Mexico, no one's really documented where they spawn. And one of the big issues in North Carolina is there are a species that's classified as being overfish and experiencing overfishing. So there's been large cuts in quotas recently for both commercial and recreational fisheries, but because we don't know where they spawn, 
we don't really know if we should be managing it at a state level or a regional level in terms of the fishery because um, it could be like the evidence that we do have suggests that like when they um, go offshore, like they, they kind of come into the estuaries to as juveniles and are often kind of caught there. Um, but then to reproduce, they go offshore and then they seem to migrate south. But we don't know basically during that winter like migration, do they spawn when they're offshore in North Carolina waters or do they spawn in Georgia or Florida and then have their eggs and larvae take the Gulf Stream back? And if it's the latter, then we probably should be managing them at a regional basis among, you know, all the states in the Southeast, where if it's the former, then the current management system, which is focused on kind of state by state, probably would work reasonably well. So uh, there's a couple different labs where we're all kind of um, tagging fish using somewhat different methodologies, but cooperating together to try to uh, track migration patterns and figure out where these uh, southern flounder go. Um, so that's kind of yeah, a different project, product, but, uh, project, um, but so the same principles just there in terms of it's definitely, you know, the, the probably the larger females that are kind of driving the population dynamics. It sounds yeah. like uh, they've got a phenology, somewhat like a starry flounder. Uh, I worked on those in San Francisco Bay, looking at the effects of contaminants on reproductive success. And uh, the uh, females, uh, uh, eggs ripen into females up to about December, then they head offshore. They disappear, the large ones, and uh, apparently spawn offshore. And then there's some mechanism that brings the young back in into the estuary and they settle out relatively small. Uh, in the estuary and have that kind of a cycle. Uh, sounds like it's similar to the southern flounder. Yeah, I, it does sound really similar to it in terms of uh, their biology. Do, um, okay, this might be, do they do like selective tidal transport to get into the estuaries for uh, like the starry flounder? Yeah, it could, it could well be. Uh, I don't know what those oceanographic mechanisms, but I, I know in the Gulf of Mexico, a lot of the a lot of the uh, crustaceans have ways of, uh, they spawn offshore and somehow the larvae get swept back into the estuaries and spend most of their time developing there until they're ready to spawn and they go offshore again. Yeah, I wonder, yeah, that's... I wonder if you could talk about that, Dr. Ash. How do the larvae uh, move around? I mean, these things are infinitesimally small and yet they're traveling pretty large distances from, in some cases. What's driving that? So... I think it's one of these things where when when they kind of first hatch, there's limitability to kind of control swimming behavior. Um, so buoyancy can be really important for eggs and sometimes initially for larvae as well, just because that will influence what depth they're at, which in certain areas that can influence the amount of transport. But as larvae have developed some they're not necessarily able to swim against the current, but they can often swim up or down um, and will often time that kind of in ways that are kind of a little bit ingenious. So like one of the things that is very common in East Coast um, estuaries, I think it might actually like this is why I asked this is I think that this actually happens in 
San Francisco Bay as well, but I'm not 100% sure, is that when um, the larvae are kind of getting close to like the, the mouth of the estuaries, what they'll start doing is um, when there is a tide, they'll kind of swim up into the water column during the high tide so that they can ride the incoming tide in. And then when uh, the tide kind of ends, they'll kind of swim down in the water column near the bottom where there's going to be um, either less currents or currents kind of going in the opposite direction. So if the tide's going out, it's not going to be going out as much at the bottom of the water column. And they'll kind of do this over several cycles as a way of kind of entering the estuaries and kind of getting into like ideal habitat before um, settling. So that's kind of one of these mechanisms that's really kind of common, like in North Carolina, especially because we have the outer banks speak, um, that separate kind of coastal oceanic waters from the estuaries. And there's only like a couple inlets where they can really kind of get through and get to estuarine waters. If you've just tuned in, um, our guest this evening is Rebecca Ash. She's an assistant professor at East North Carolina University. And we're talking about larval fish and fish reproduction. A fascinating discussion. Yeah, I've been really enjoying it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating to me because, the, you know, we literally don't see this. Most of us don't see these larval fish at all. They're a complete mystery. You know, we just see them when, they're, uh, when they get big enough to catch or eat. And uh, so studying them must involve some difficult techniques and tricks. Yeah, I mean, I think that like uh, oftentimes they're they're caught with plankton nets, so it's kind of interesting just in terms of sometimes actually attracting students who are interested to study them because I think a lot of people who want to study fish and fisheries are really excited about kind of big sport fish or I'm kind of like, okay, how do I get people excited about little kind of larvae that are, I don't know, I think charismatic, but, um, you know, <laughs> maybe take a little, little like learning curve to get used to. Um, you know, I think that like, in terms of, I guess, maybe motivating people to say them, kind of what we were talking about beforehand, that they really do influence kind of productivity of fisheries in terms of survival. So I think that's kind of um, oftentimes why I try to lead with when uh, talking with students. Um, and definitely, I think like one of the challenges, I think across many parts of science is the taxonomy of them can be quite challenging um and we just don't have as many people these days who have expertise in, in that so i think that's something where um i feel like we need we need more training of, of scientists on that boy that's a theme that just keeps coming up on this show bob we've we've uh, dr ash must be about the fourth guest that has brought up uh the dearth of taxonomists as being uh, an impediment to study in in some of these fields <laughs> Yeah, it's a huge it's a huge problem. And I'm when I was younger and doing my graduate work, there was people were specialized in different animal groups. And if you had certain kinds of uh, brittle starfish or certain kinds of amphipods, you knew who to send them to. And the, those those positions are now going away, and uh, we don't have the same force that we used to. Even even a uh, hundred years ago, there were probably more people into the taxonomy and explore exploring our uh, environment here on the Pacific coast. Uh, most of the people were taxonomists. The Alan Hancock Foundation, where I did my some of my graduate work, uh, it was just 
uh, a huge building and it was full of taxonomists. And those people were almost completely gone. Do you think that that's related to like changes in how science is, is funded? Just because I kind of feel like that that's one of the challenges, I guess, nowadays is that like everything is positions are sometimes being driven by like who do who do universities think will be able to bring in lots of grant money? <laughs> yeah, we got I think we got uh, really into process and then if you weren't into process, uh, uh, ecological processes that it was, I think, more difficult, more challenging as time went on to get funding. Um, but then when, you know, things like climate change comes along, uh, all of a sudden we, we have a few people that have been collecting data and identifying things uh, for decades, but very, very few of those, uh, of those uh, data sets, uh, but they become extremely valuable. And, uh, you know, and processes are important, yes, but having the monitoring uh, that has gone on for years and decades and uh, being able to, like in Cal Coffee, to mine that, that particular uh, rich data set that tells you a lot about, uh, you know, what's really controlling uh, or, or certainly point to controlling factors in ecology become very, very important when you're thinking about how the oceans are going to change. Yeah, I agree. And actually, if it's okay with uh, both of you, maybe I'll just kind of return to like talking about some uh, the results of that study, just because I think I introduced it. I was just like, oh, am I jumping the gun talking about the, the results too early? But maybe now that we've kind of circled back to Cal Coffee, this seems like it could be a good time. Um, so, so what we did find, and this was a product of the fact that there was, you know, several decades of data there is, you know, on land, we do know that basically with climate change, there's a lot of events that are happening earlier in the um, year because basically spring's arriving earlier. But what I kind of found with uh, the Cal Coffee data is you can see that, but there's this diversity of ways that fish are responding in terms of their changes in seasonality. So I think um, there was about 40% of the species were doing the same thing as on land. They were very much driven by temperature and they're generally spawning earlier. There was um, another 40% where there's variations and kind of spawning time between decades, but there wasn't as much of a trend. It would be worthwhile though, going back like now that's been a couple of years and that we've had things like the blob and marine heat waves to see if there might be more trends amongst all those species. But then the other 20%, which is really kind of interesting, um, were often coastal species that were much more influenced by upwelling. And there are some in indications that upwelling um, is projected to experience delays um, in terms of its onset. And with uh, those species, uh, we, we did find that like when it, when upwelling began later, they would um, often spawn later. But it's interesting just because since they're coastal species, it's probably not that they're trying to time things to the upwelling. They might be trying to time things to when there isn't upwelling because the upwelling can evac them offshore and away from coastal habitats. So I think like, I don't know, it was kind of a neat story in that like uh, you had different kind of 
different groups of organisms that use slightly different habitats responding to some of the same changes in the ecosystem in different ways. Do you, do you have a sense of what factors affect their, the timing of reproduction? I mean, it, what is it that triggers them? Uh, so temperature is often kind of a really important um, factor. It's not the only factor in fish, but um, basically there's often a good relationship between reproductive timing um, and temperature because since they're cold-blooded organisms, temperature kind of influences metabolism. So warmer temperatures really accelerates metabolism, and this can lead to faster gonadal development and faster spawning. Of course, um, you could have thresholds where things are just too hot and, um, you know, those met metabolic rates are still going to get sped up, but it might be to a point where organisms aren't getting able to keep up in terms of like a diet and prey. And you do have kind of responses to where there can be thresholds, but generally, um, you know, uh, Oftentimes, like you can look at gonadal development among fish um, over a period of weeks or two months before spawning and measure this index of gonadal biomass relative to like uh, the biomass of fish in general. And across a variety of species, that's really correlated to like cumulative temperature exposure in terms of how quickly the gonadal biomass builds up. Um, some populations photo period um, can be important too. Um, let me see. We've found that like uh, winds um, on the East Coast where I'm working now in North Carolina can be important in terms of transport processes, in terms of basically not as much for spawning, but for when like larvae show up in estuaries. Um, and then population size can also um, be important too, but that varies from species to species because sometimes, you know, depending on migration, sometimes it's the larger fish can migrate faster and they show up first, where in other populations, they might be migrating from a different area for larger fish and show up later. So that's that's something that's consistently important in terms of reproductive timing, but it's not the same for, for each fish. Yeah, we've had uh, Bill Seideman uh, on our program a couple times, and uh, he's been studying the oceanography, uh, biological oceanography of kind of the northern California coast. And uh, he's noted that uh, we're getting a lot of variability in, in upwelling patterns uh, from year to year, and we can have... Uh, a really vigorous upwelling that stops because the northwest winds somehow are are coming through with the same strength we normally see and then we can have a lack of wind and we can have a, a great upwelling season so there a lot of a lot of different patterns can develop and so i guess the fish have to kind of uh, evolve a, a set of uh, responses that can deal with this variability in, in uh, what's happening with the nutrients yeah, I think that's exactly right. And that kind of goes back to like, um, I think I mentioned like sometimes bet hedging in terms of reproduction. So a lot of the small pelagic fish like um, anchovy, sardine, like said the mackerels, they all do what's called batch spawning. And it's been hypothesized that that's um, a response to basically exactly those variable conditions that if you 
reproduce in batches. Um, you know, for some of them, they can reproduce every seven days, every 10 days if there's enough food. You know, there's a chance that you're going to hit the right conditions at some point. So I think that's been hypothesized why some of the small pelagics have these very long spawning seasons where they're just uh, spawning in batches throughout. Yeah. How long a period of time does that, how, how long do they keep doing that? I mean, one of the things that actually was really surprising when looking at the um, CalCoffee data set is almost all the species have a peak season, but you, for many of them, you do see larvae at almost um, many months of the year. So, you know, that, that kind of maybe makes sense for some of the oceanic species that are further out. But, like, I just found that, like, that was really common where, you know, that for many of the species over the 60 years, we almost would find some larvae in almost every month, but you know, it might just be a couple. So there's a seasonal aspect, but it's not really all that uh, rigorous. They, they basically are responding to more conditions more than uh, seasons. I, yeah. I think that that is really different than a lot of other areas for, for fish too, just that there's a little bit less, you know, I sometimes joke that I became really interested in studying seasonality in Southern California, where there's not a whole lot of seasonality. <laughs> we were uh, studying uh, kelp bass uh, off the Palos Verdes Peninsula because of the DDT deposits and the sediments there. Um, and uh, nobody had really looked very carefully at uh, kelp bass reproduction. And it was interesting because they seemed to be able to bring their eggs to a certain stage full of yolk and everything, but they didn't do the final maturation in the gonads till just before they're ready to spawn. And they apparently did batch spawn, uh, although we didn't really have direct observations of that phenomenon. But uh, it, was, uh, it was kind of interesting, the ability to hold those eggs until until conditions were, were really favorable. So this might be going off in a completely different subject. I don't know a lot about this, but I kind of remember hearing that um, this last year, DDT has been like a big, a hot topic again in the California current that apparently there was, I think maybe somewhere in offshore, like a, some reserves buried in the sediment that were found in like the Channel Islands that people are concerned about kind of remobilizing. Yeah, well, there, there, there was some DET discovered uh, in deep water not too far from uh, Santa Catalina Island, uh, where people thought, you know, most of it, there was a huge amount of it buried, uh, I think 20 metric tons in the, in the sediments of Palos Verdes, uh, from discharges from the Montrose uh, chemical uh, plant. And uh, that caused all kinds of problems with, with uh, bird reproduction. And, uh, and we, we actually documented some kind of interesting uh, hormonal effects in fish and reproductive effects that was going on, apparently linked to DDT um, and PCBs as well. But uh, yeah, it's it's an interesting interesting topic. They've been they've been going down since the '70s in the California Current, um, but there's still some hot spots left, and people worry about DDT and the sediments in the in the uh, 
on the Palace Verde shelf and where the, those sediments may slump and expose some of the old stuff that was deposited in the 70s. And we really, really uh, pretty concentrated down, you know, about 20 centimeters below the surface of the mud. Yeah, I just, uh, back in December, I think I attended uh, a virtual conference just because that's what we're doing these days. And it was for the Cal Coffee program. And that was kind of like one of these hot topics um, this particular year that I hadn't previously heard about. So I thought that was just kind of interesting how some sometimes these things, like, uh, like you said, like from the 70s kind of seem like it's resurfacing as an issue that people have been focusing on. Yeah. yeah, and again with the probabilities, you know, the uh, the 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 low hanging fruit was to stop distributing DDT through the atmosphere, but now there's all this buried stuff that we kind of. I mean, I like Bob. I worked on DDT a little bit when I was an engineer, and there's a real problem in part of San Francisco Bay as well because there was a DDT loading terminal at Richmond, and uh, there's a lot of it in the sediments, and as long as it stays down there and stays buried, uh, it's fairly low risk. But uh, what we're finding out now is that low probability events can occur and just cause a sudden release, and so that's what you're, that's what everybody is now starting to realize as we get more and more aware of the effects of these processes that happen infrequently. Well, if you've just tuned in, we're talking to Dr. Rebecca Ash, uh, assistant professor at East North Carolina University, and expert in uh, fishes, uh, fish reproduction, and particularly fish larvae and fish development, and how climate change affects uh, our fisheries. You've done some management things too, right? Management-directed uh, research, Rebecca. Well, I think like one of the areas that I guess right now that like um, we're working on, which is kind of management directed, but kind of relates actually to like what we were just talking about is we've been doing um, in North Carolina, some dredging impact studies on larval fish um, as well. So that's a little bit, that's an interesting one because that is really being very much driven by the managers and their, their concerns just because um shipping channels do need to be dredged periodically. And I think in the past they've uh, done it um, in largely in winter months, but um, we have uh, kind of the North Atlantic right whale, which is a protected whale species that is not doing well. And it's migration is in winter. So they've been shifting some of that to um, summer. So our lab has kind of been trying to study that just because uh, there is a well, interestingly enough, another NOAA time series of larval fish that doesn't go back as far as the Cal Coffee time series that we've been talking about, but goes back to the 80s um, that our lab's been working with and kind of collaborating with NOAA on. But we kind of expanded to start sampling in summer. So we have some baseline data to like uh, look at potential impacts of this change in changes in time of like when dredging is happening in like North Carolina. So like, I think that in terms of work with management, that one is very much kind of driven by, um, you know, should there be environmental windows where um, things like uh, dredging are um, allowed or should we be restricting it kind of to certain seasons versus kind of doing it other times of year? Right. 
Yeah, we've got an analogy, a similar situation with crabbing here and the, and the migration of humpback whales. Oh, yeah. I remember hearing about that. Actually, that was uh, discussed at that conference where uh, DDT like, came up as well. So it was something where um, during, um, I think, during the marine heat wave, it was like uh, the timing of crabbing changed because you had the big algal bloom and then you know, the season was closed for a while because of that. And then when it opened, it was a unusual time of year, which then had a lot more conflict with uh, whale migrations. Yeah, the commercial crabbers are beset from both ends, basically. Yeah, they have uh, they have closures from domoic acid problems and then, then the delayed opening as they wait for the whale migration to kind of pass by because there have been in recent years a, a lot of entanglement problems and uh, nobody likes that even the crabbers don't like that so they're they've been a it's been quite controversial out here because it delays the opening of crab season which is uh, not just a problem for the crabbers but for everybody who wants to buy a dungeness crab and can't get it <laughs> yeah i can see that <laughs> And that is like one of those like iconic types of uh, seafood in like Northern California, definitely. Yeah, for sure. Well, if you, you know, anybody that's ever seen a, a whale tangled in a rope or a line of some sort, and uh, it's pretty sad. <laughs> it's a pretty, yeah, pretty compelling uh, situation. So it's interesting that uh, that you're involved in that from uh, from the aspect of dredging and affecting the right whales out out there on the Atlantic coast, you know, similar situation, but a totally different driver. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think that just like with this particular ecosystem, like they're the time series I mentioned, they've traditionally like a uh, surveyed larvae on a weekly basis during fall, winter and spring, but there's just less data on summer just because um, a lot of the commercially important fish in our region do have reproduced uh, during like winter and like spring months. So just less like summer is really important for um, the estuaries in terms of nursery habitat, but there's just been less uh, data on kind of what's going on with uh, larval fish in, in the summer. And they're the ones that are likely to be impacted by suspended sediments um, since they're planktonic. I know in San Francisco Bay, the uh, I believe the herring fishery is uh, controlled and uh, dredging is not uh, allowed by by permit uh, during the times of the herring are spawning. Usually, it's about this time of year, uh, Tim. Or is it? Yeah, I think they just finished up. Yeah, they, yeah. they they tend to do it in January and early February. Right. Yeah. It's a big deal for birders because the, the herring spawn draws in an enormous concentration of gulls. And so birders uh, <laughs> flock down to the northern part of, uh, like around Tiburon, especially Sausalito. There's a big herring spawn up there. And uh, there's always one or two rare gulls that just kind of join that flock. And where they are the rest of the time, nobody knows. But when you get 10,000 gulls in one place, then uh, you can sift through them and find one or two weirdos. But it also just draws in, you know, how interrelated all these f factors are that, you know, we're talking about the spawning of herring. I'm not all that familiar with, with their life cycle, but I don't think they spend most of their time in the bay. They come in there specifically to spawn. And 
then it triggers, you know, that event is just a bonanza of food for a whole raft of other species, uh, not just gulls, but a lot of birds and, of course, other fish. And I'm sure that's the same for a lot of the fish that you study as well, right? That when the spawning season itself is a, a sudden flood of nutrition for a lot of other things. Yeah, I, that that is absolutely true. So like one of our other projects, I think um, maybe came up a little bit at the beginning um, is we've been working with a scientist, um, Brad Arisman, who is an expertise on like tropical fish spawning aggregations. And we've been kind of analyzing historical places where you have like spawning aggregations of uh, snappers and groupers. And those are often very specific places and where fish go to spawn at very specific times of year. But it's, it's a similar situation. Like for instance, like the divers that will dive there, they'll see like whale sharks, like attracted to some of these spawning aggregation sites because of the massive amount of food provided by like the eggs and larvae or eggs and sperm at that point when they're spawning. So I think that, yeah, that is a common phenomenon. So Tim, I think we're coming uh, close to the end of our time. Is that correct? Yeah, I think we are. I think it's time to uh, to ask our guest, uh, Dr. Ash, if you have uh, kind of any wrap-up or any last thoughts you'd like to leave listeners with and where they might get more information to find out about larval fish. Well, I guess like one thing might be like just mentioning, you know, like the study that I talked about looking at phenology, that is published. That is in um, Proceedings at the National Academy of Science. That's from 2015. 14, uh, 2015. Um, I've kind of jumped around and talked about a couple different topics, but, um, you know, if people are interested in contacting me, like, um, they can definitely reach out. And I guess the other thing that's kind of good to know is sometimes a lot of this data are publicly available if people are interested in it. Thank you. Thank you for being on. It's uh, great to have you. You've been listening to the Ecology Hour on KZYX. Our guest tonight was Dr. Rebecca Ash, assistant professor at East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. She's also Sloan Foundation Research Fellow in Ocean Sciences. If you're interested in finding out more about her work, her research, and any of the information you heard tonight and the papers that were mentioned by her or Bob, you can go to our website. That's ecologyhour.wordpress.com.